welcome back to another episode of the 343 Podcast. There has been a lot of activity in the U.S. soccer landscape lately. Uh, Most notably, there are some serious people with some serious money and serious ideas and serious experience getting involved with the movement to change U.S. soccer for the better. Ricardo Silva and Dennis Crowley aren't bringing pocket change to the table. They are bringing big names, such as their own, and big reputations, along with their big bank accounts. But more importantly, these guys are outsiders when it comes to the world of U.S. soccer, and they are bringing a whole new perspective and a whole new objective. And their willingness to file a lawsuit in the Court of Arbitration for Sport against U.S. soccer and MLS are proof that these guys mean business and they are not interested in wasting any more time. And when I spoke with today's podcast guest, he told me to keep in mind that Ricardo and Dennis don't owe anything to anybody. And that is extremely important to highlight because there is a weird feeling of sympathy for MLS owners that sometimes pops up when we start talking about promotion relegation. A feeling like we owe these guys something. Like there's some sort of gods that came down and bestowed American soccer upon the people, and we the people must bow down and kiss their feet for eternity. And when I interviewed Phil Shane from Being Sports, we spent a good chunk of time discussing where U.S. soccer might be without the investments of guys like Robert Kraft or Phil Anschutz. And I remember asking Phil Shane something along the lines of, how long do we have to keep saying thank you to these guys? Another argument from supporters of the current MLS franchise system is that the owners wouldn't have bought in for $150 million or whatever the price they paid if there was a possibility of being relegated out of Major League Soccer the next season. Well, yeah, no shit. But let's look at the flip side of this, though. Why would anyone in their right mind invest in lower division soccer if there is no incentive or opportunity to move up? The fact is that FIFA mandates an open open pyramid, sorry, that FIFA mandates an open pyramid with movement up and down based on merit for a good reason. And the fact that the United States are one of only two nations in the entire world that operate with a closed system is alarming. The sympathy for these billionaires or these groups of millionaires that have banded together, like LAFC, for example, is so confusing to me. Mostly because the majority of the MLS owners operate in a free market capitalist system with all their other business ventures where they likely make most of their money. And in those markets, they're able to develop products and sell them with virtually no restrictions, but also little protection. Because in the real world, it's a dog-eat-dog environment. And these guys, these billionaires or these millionaires have all proven to be vicious and successful when it comes to business. So why not an MLS? Why are the MLS owners afraid to compete in a free and open soccer market? And why do some of these fans, these fans of Major League Soccer, protect and support these owners? It's mind-boggling. I, I Honestly, I, I seriously don't get it sometimes. I really don't. But the good thing is, is there's definitely a movement that is calling for change. And you can see it every day in action on Twitter, on Facebook, and on podcasts like this. And you can argue that one of the movement's forefathers is, is Ted Westerfeld. And that movement on the internet is now moving from Twitter to an actual courtroom with guys like Ricardo Silva and Dennis Crawley taking action. 
Now, we're going to have to wait and see what actually happens there, but there are things happening, and there are people getting involved and speaking up. And one of those people is today's guest, and that is Jerome de Bonton. And my French is pretty terrible, and I hope I got that right. But Jerome, like Ricardo and like Dennis, isn't just some chump. He isn't just some guy from Twitter. He isn't just some soccer dad. Jerome is the former president of AS Monaco, a club in France's first division that has been the home to players such as Thierry Henry, Eric Abidal, George Weah, James Rodriguez, and as I'm writing this, is currently the home of Kylian Mbappe. Now, Jerome is also the former manager, general manager, excuse me, Jerome is also the former general manager of MLS's New York Red Bulls. And he also does happen to be on the board of directors of the Colorado Rush Soccer Club, one of the largest youth soccer clubs in America that services over 5,000 players annually. So you can see he has experience from top to bottom. So why is Jerome a key player in this movement? Why am I even interviewing him? And I think at some point in the interview, I maybe just asked him, like, why do I even know your name? Because I wasn't too familiar with him when I, when I took this interview or when I, when I approached this interview. I honestly had a lot to learn about him, and I'm glad that I did. Well, Jerome is a key player because he is toying with the idea of running against Sunil Gulati for the position of president of the United States Soccer Federation. And like I just told you, he has the necessary experience and the right people in his corner that lead me to believe that this idea of his should be taken pretty seriously. Now, Jerome and I spoke at length about some of the problems running rampant in U.S. soccer. The abolishment of term limits for a sitting USSF president. That somehow disappeared uh, under Sunil Gulati. Uh, the lack of investment from certain bottom-feeding franchises in Major League Soccer and how not having promotion relegation is actually hurting us, not helping us. Now, I'm excited for everything that is happening. I'm excited for the people who are getting involved with changing U.S. soccer, because it looks like the free ride is over. It looks like MLS and U.S. soccer aren't going to be able to enjoy the totally relaxed and comfortable environment that they have been accustomed to over the years. There is now real pressure from high-profile figures that are demanding change. And a brief visit to any high school history class would surely provide plenty of evidence for what could potentially happen next in a situation like this. Now, Jerome was a fantastic guest to have on the show, but we did battle some severe audio difficulties. The final outcome of the podcast is actually pretty good quality. I think I was able to salvage most of it. Um, but there were times that I just I simply couldn't hear him. Um, so if I seem lost, I, I apologize. One example specifically that I remember it was when he asked if I knew of Nico Kreinchar, which of, of course I do. And I couldn't understand him. So I just said no. And I'm super embarrassed. That's on record. But uh, whoops, my bad. Um, but yeah, so this uh, this podcast was super fun. It was a long time in the making. I had connected with him a couple different times and, and asked him to be on the show. And, and I'm glad that we were finally able to do it. I hope that you guys enjoy it. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, which I think is like the new iTunes for podcasts, apparently. I'm not too, not too sure. But um, you can also find it on Stitcher if you listen to this on Android or some other type of device that doesn't accept Apple Podcasts. Um, and if you really like this podcast, it would be uh, super cool if you could leave a five-star rating. I would really appreciate you. Thank you. All right. That's enough for the intro. 
I hope that you enjoy this extremely awesome episode of the 343 podcast with Jerome Desbonton. This episode of the 343 podcast is brought to you by 343coaching.com. That's the number three, number four, number three, coaching, all spelled out, dot com. And on 343coaching.com, you can find all of our articles, all of our podcast episodes. You can find links to our free and our premium coaching courses. And you can also find links to our live in-person experiences, including our players club. If you would like to find out more, please visit 343coaching.com. That's the number three, number four, number three, coaching.com. And with that, enjoy this episode of the 343 podcast. better? Can you hear me fine? Yeah, I can. I don't know how good the recording is going to be, though. I've never recorded like this before, so we'll uh, we'll give it a try. And, and if anything, maybe we can just... Uh, sorry, excuse me. Um if anything, maybe I can just transcribe and, and do a written and turn it into like a written interview. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we can do that if, if you want. Yeah. Sometime. Yeah. You know, that changes and we can try in 10, 15 minutes to go back on Skype. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think I think this is so fine. It looks like California? It, Where in California are you? I am in San Luis Obispo. I will confess I don't know where that is. Yeah. A lot of people don't. Uh, it's it's pretty much directly between San Francisco and Los Angeles, right on the coast. Okay, so, so north of Santa Barbara. Yeah, I'm like one hour north of Santa Barbara. Okay. Yeah, so a lot of people know where Santa Barbara is. Yeah, I know Santa Barbara. Well, I know. Well, in fact, you're not very far from a place called Los Olivos. Yeah, I used to work there. Oh, you did. So I knew the. Firestone family. You're the what? Uh, I knew the Firestone family. Oh, one you... Of my, one of my classmates from college married one of the Firestone daughters. Okay. So we visited with them a number of times. Yeah. It's a beautiful part of the country. Yeah, it is. I, uh, I actually used to work right down the street from Firestone's Vineyard, and now I work down the street from their brewery. So Firestone Walker Brewing yeah, Company. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm in the I, I'm in the beer industry. That's my day job. And you play soccer still or not? No, I don't play anymore. I I'm no. I'm retired. <laughs> yeah. You're too young to be retired. <laughs> no, I I stopped playing when I was. Well, I stopped playing competitively when I was like 21, and I I yeah. started I started coaching um, at a at a fairly young age. So I started coaching at 19, um, but that's where I've been dedicating a lot of my time. Until about two years ago, and then I started doing this type of stuff, doing podcasting and, and helping with a company that's doing coaching education and and those types of things. That's where all my efforts been going the last two years. And you of Croatian origin, I imagine. I am. Yeah, my my father is from uh, is from Croatia, so that's where I get it. That's where I get it from. <laughs> and where? I have many friends in Croatia. Where, where are you from? I'm, you know, obviously from France. I can't hide my French accent. But unknown to most, I'm born of a Swedish mother and a French father. So I have family both in Sweden and in France. And our hometown is in the northern part of Burgundy, near the town of Auxerre, which is why occasionally you'll see some tweets from me you know, about the club of Auxerre and supporting a local Burgundy club. Uh, but that's 
where our family is from, and I obviously went to school in France before heading to the States and ended in college at Amherst. And basically, I've been in the States ever since. So did school bring you to the United States then, or was it something else? Um, I think school was a, a driving force, but I had a, my dad, who is still alive, uh, was always a big fan of America. And he would tell the stories about how he came to America with a theater group in 1945 or 46 when he was 15, right after the war. And when we grew, we were growing up, my brothers and my sister always heard you know, great comments about America. And my dad offered to have us go every summer through various exchange programs to the States. And out of the four siblings, I'm the only one who really picked up that opportunity. And I liked it so much. I went to different families almost every summer in different parts of the country. And I liked it so much that it became sort of a natural thing for me to say that I wanted to study in America. And um, that's what led to my enrollment at Amherst. And around what what year was that? Paint, paint the time frame. I graduated from Amherst in 1981. 81, okay. What was, what was the soccer landscape like back then? Were you involved at all, or is that something that, that came later? Well, I played my whole life. Kid, uh, I was in competitive club, you know, in and Paris, and played in carpet. Now, obviously, back in you know, the late 70s, soccer wasn't as popular as it is now, but it was still played in most you know, D3, D2, and D1 schools. It was a little less structured, meaning that... We didn't have, at least in D3 at Amherst, we didn't have a tournament after the regular season. But the regular season included playing against larger school, bigger teams. So my quest to fame, in a way, is to have played against UConn uh, the year they won the national championship. So that's uh, fall of 1979. And I like to tell the story because it's mostly true, exaggerated a little bit, but not too much. Uh, we played uh, against UConn uh, in Hartford. I scored a goal in the first half, and the game at halftime was 1-0. And I, and I remember it because it's the first time ever that a journalist walked up to me to ask anything from me. And obviously... That journalist picked me because I had scored the goal. Now, I twisted my ankle early on in the second half when the score was still 1-0 and left the field and didn't play the rest of the game. And the game ended 7-1 to in favor of UConn. <laughs> so I let anyone who wants to speculate as to what would have happened had I played the whole game, they're welcome to do so. But we did, we I did was... play those games. We played UConn, we played Harvard, we played Dartmouth, and others that I've forgotten now. Um, so I thought that in terms of collegial sport, it was more interesting for everybody. Obviously, nowadays, it's all classified in various leagues. You know, the, the D1 teams don't want to play the D3s, and the D3s don't want to play you know, other leagues in preseason and so on. But they play many more games you know, after they go to the regular tournament, they go into the NCAA playoff. And, well, we played maybe 11 or 12 games in the fall, I think. If I look at the Amherst College, um, 
schedule for this year. I think they're scheduled to play 17 games even before going into the NCAA if they make it. So they may end playing 20 or 22 games. So I wish I had that, but I didn't. So I played in college and I continued to play as a as an adult and I'll be 60 soon and I still play. And I'll tell you with great pride that I played on Saturday and scored three goals. <laughs> 60, 62 years old or 63 years old? No, I'm 59. 59? Yeah. Oh, I thought you said 60-something. Okay. So 50. No, I'll be 60 soon. Okay, 60 soon. Okay. So 50, 59 years old and you scored three goals on Saturday. That's correct. <laughs> Jerome, you're an animal. No, I'm pretty sure where I find it. So I'm curious, why... why why do I even know your name? I guess I, I'm trying to figure out how I came about your Twitter profile or, or no, your, your information. Say it again. It's a goal that I scored against UConn. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. I I, I I really have no quest to fame. I I did a few things in the soccer world that you know, brought some attention to me. Uh, one was being on the board of IS Monaco and acting as the president of the club for a little over a year. I was on the board for seven, but president is one year. Um, I was involved with U.S. soccer at different level, but U.S. Soccer Foundation, you know, after it was launched in 1996. Um, more recently, I won the New York Red Bulls. If I'm not mistaken, I heard your name first brought up, I think maybe a year ago, by a fellow named Ted Westerfeld. Does, does that name ring a bell to you? Yeah, he's someone I connected with over Twitter. Okay. And uh, I think I, I had a coffee or a drink with him once at the Denver airport. That's the one that you're talking about. What, what was your reaction of Ted? A lot of people haven't met him in person, and I, and I, I have. I'm, I'm fortunate to have met him in person. Very likable fellow. Um, you know, he, he says things that you know, disturb, that tends to disturb the establishment, and maybe sometimes he's a little too direct uh, with his dealings on Twitter. But he means well, and I think you know, he's brought some interesting perspective on the subject of promotion and relegation. So, in many ways, I wish there were more of him. People who do their research, uh, look at history, look for documentation uh, to argue the points they want to make. Uh, I don't know what age he is, but I would say probably in his 40s. Yeah, something and, like that. Yeah. Uh, and as I say, quite, quite engaged in this attempt to change the U.S. soccer scene for the best. What prompted you to say yes to getting coffee with Ted? Uh, 
Was it was it him? Did he reach out to you, or did you guys just so happen to cross paths in an airport? I forgot, but I, I have some business in Taos, New Mexico, uh, where I go regularly, and often I fly to Denver. And I think he knew of my championship of Rush Soccer, the main Rush club is based in Little Town, Colorado. Um, so I forgot whether he suggested it or whether he asked if I ever came to Denver. Um, but so it happened that you know, I had time and I was curious to get to know him. Uh, I had read a lot of his tweets and I thought that, or his website, shall we call. And I thought he said, you know, as I said earlier, he said some interesting things. Yeah, it was funny when I first in when I first met Ted, I actually convinced him to fly to Las Vegas because we were doing a coaching conference in Las Vegas. And I said, "Hey, Ted, like we're going to be out here. We're going to have like thirty people that forty maybe forty people that know who you are, and, and I'm sure everybody would love to meet you." And getting to meet him away from you know Twitter or, or to have a, a conversation in person was much different than having a conversation with him over the computer. And I, <laughs> Anyone like him you know, to, to have a meaningful impact, but he's already had an impact, and, and so have you. But at some point, you need a real platform. So you need sort of an institutional platform from which you can speak to your audience, and, and your audience is you know, very diverse. It goes from you know, the leadership of the federation to the youth players. Uh, but Twitter is not enough. It's a good tool. Um, but I think that if that movement is to take on some, you know, some speed, you know, he and you and others need to find an institutionalized environment from which you could speak. So you said yourself. How how do you see yourself involved? What can you do to give this movement legs and take it somewhere new? Well, I can lend my expertise and. I can make some recommendation, and I can certainly you know, bring the right people to the table. Um, the promotion litigation battle is an important one, but it's not the only one. There's a lot of work for everyone who aspire to contributing to an improvement of the situation. Um, so if I can let or certainly get the message of the messages to the right people, I gladly do so. Uh, but I, I can't provide, uh, I'm not enough of a personality to provide a platform to Ted as maybe Eric Rinalda or other members of the national team or you know, famous coaches could be. What? You, you understand that you, you need, the challenges that we have with the subject of promotion and litigation is that we are up and against the establishment. Uh, certainly, it would be a mistake to confuse the Federation for MLS and vice versa. Unlike what most people think, you know, the ties between, say, Sunil Gilati and Don Garber are not so great, and the opinion diverge on many points. Um, but on the very subject of how do we improve the federation so that at some stage in the future you know, we get some promotion and relegation in the youth system all the way 
through the pores, you know, is work that you know goes beyond just criticizing MLS. It requires that you know, we produce some tangible organizational structure that you know, indeed those who will be in power in the future will have the ability to apply and to enforce. So it's it's not a simple process, uh, but I think developments like the one we just saw you know, with Mr. Silva and Mr. Crawley uh, trying to bring some outside support for those changes certainly will be also important contributors. What was your first reaction when you saw what happened? It would have been last week, I guess, in like the beginning of August 2017 for people that are listening to this down the road. Well, yeah, I've been saying it for a long time, maybe for too long, that eventually the structure that we have in place in regards to those private professional leagues would implode because it didn't work. Contrary to what maybe the leadership of MLS or NSL wants you to believe, none of those owners are making any money. And, and those who are not losing, uh, uh, certainly not making much. And those who are investing the most are probably the ones who are the most interested in seeing changes. You know, without being qualified to speak on behalf of the owners of, say, Toronto, um, or maybe the owners of NYCFC, you know, when you look at the money that they invest in their franchise, you can probably speculate that they wish or that they would hope for the owners of Philadelphia or the owners of DC uh, United um, or Minneapolis United to spend the same amount so that they could be a competitive you know, level field. Well, it's not happening in the closed league. So would they be better off if there was an open league and they were competing against other investors willing to you know, invest the right amount and make the right sacrifice? So I think eventually when the opportunities will be there for some of the owners you know, to support the concept of promotion and relegation, obviously there'll be some who will fight it and if you ask yourself which ones, just look at the table of the MLS ranking year in, year out, you will get a sense of who's investing and who is not, and who will be supportive of promotion and relegation and who would not be. Um, so I think that they will be, for the most part, supportive. So having forecasted for years that eventually they will be, you know, not close to, but open to it. Um, I'm not surprised to see the type of development that we saw two weeks ago, you know, but no more than I was last year when Mr. Silva approached me to talk about the Deloitte study about promotion and relegation and the effect that it could have on organized soccer in the U.S. So you have you have an existing relationship with with Silva then? This no, I've never met him. His staff reached out to me and contribute to the Deloitte study, but I've never met uh, Mr. And no relationship with, with Dennis Crowley either then? No, I follow him. I mean, he's a famous person in New York. He's been very successful with his work. You know, I have a number of friends who own NPSL team, 
and I've heard a lot of good things about him. I follow his tweets occasionally, and he says a lot of interesting things as well. Um, and neither one of those two, and I think the good example of two team owners who were not part of the U.S. soccer scene 10 years ago, who are now sort of taking their fate in their own hand and showing some initiative in terms of what could, in the end, really impact the way professional soccer is structured in this country. I wonder if that's actually a, a plus to have two people that were outside or not, not involved with U.S. soccer 10 years ago and they're bringing a fresh set of eyes or a fresh set of ideas because I know people that have been in the scene for quite a while we're kind of in a way complacent because we know that's just how things are or how things have been and these guys are coming in and, and right away they're saying no this isn't right we need to change this oh, you're right and, and keep in mind that they don't owe anything to anybody you know, the complacency that you're talking about is very it's a very relevant point Sunil has been president for so many years and prior to that was involved since the early 90s. And most people around him, and and the same applies to Don Garber at MLS, who I think has been in charge of the league for at least 15 years, if not more. They've positioned most of the decision makers themselves. I often read that Soccer fans you know, are not happy with the announcers on TV or you know, the lack of objectivity in the commentary that they make about the league or the game. But that's just a reflection of the complacency that we have in place because all those people indirectly, or at least the vast majority of them, owe their position to you know, the people in position of power today. Whereas in the case of Dennis or... Silva, I forgot his first name now. You know, we have individuals who have no past relationship with either or, Sunil or Don, so they they can speak freely and you know, they can be, in a way, even more direct because they, they have to take. You know, there are a lot of people, Americans, who have invested in soccer but who early on opted to invest abroad. So many EPL teams now are owned by American owners or Italian team, or Spanish team, uh, hardly any of those, you know, maybe I can think of one, but hardly any of those uh, has an interest in a professional team in the U.S. So they can criticize MLS, so they can justify all the reasons why they're not interested in investing in MLS. But they don't have a stake the way Dennis Crawley does, and to another extent, Mr. Silva. It's also interesting, too, because... Dennis Crawley and Silva and, and some of the other people that are starting to speak up now, they actually aren't reliant on their soccer business as part of their, you know, their livelihood. They're, they're, they're fine without their NPSL team or without their USL team. You know, their business is, is good otherwise. So that gives them an even more incentive to speak up and speak their mind for what they feel is right or for what they feel would grow their, their small piece of the, of the pie. Maybe there you have the, your future leaders. Exactly, but when it when it comes to to leadership, I guess this is where I, I'm I'm naive and I don't know how how well versed you are in the way that other countries handle things, like electing a, a, a president of a federation. 
Now, is is it common for a person like Sunil Gulati to to go as long as he has without any competition and without any change? Is it common for somebody like Don Garber to hold that position for so long without any change? No, it's not common. Um, typically, the longevity of a federation president is tied to the performance of the national team. Um, the U.S. is a very different you know, scene than the soccer powerhouses of South America or Europe. Um, and in regards to Don Garber, you know, there are no private leagues anywhere. Uh, I think what's puzzling what's been puzzling to me regarding MLS is that the league continues to lose large sums of money and yet, you know, is not questioned its leadership. And I question the leadership not much. I have anything against anyone in particular. But I look at a group of individuals on the top five person in charge of MLS and I ask myself how much soccer expertise do they have? And really the answer to the question is zero. None of those five have ever played the game. You know, each one of them came to the league, you know, for career opportunities, and seem to have found such a cushion you know, situation for them that they've not say to leave or go anywhere else. Well, I think that had we had a more qualified leadership, that soccer would be much further ahead, both in terms of structure, but in terms of popularity than where it is today. So comparing, you know, to Germany or England or France, you know, doesn't bring much light to your question, except maybe in regards to the election of the president, uh, where in most countries, you know, they are elected by a combination of representatives from all three important segments of the soccer population, you know, the youth, um, the amateurs and the pro. The waiting is very different, you know, in, say, Germany or France than it is in the U.S. Um, those countries, in some instances, have term limits. But clearly, you know, the decision in the end uh, of you know, who makes it is much more democratic uh, than anything we've seen in the U.S., where it seems to have been a private club with friends appointing other friends and often positioning their own contacts in decisions or situations of power to, in a way, protect themselves against potential changes. The the one radical election that took place was the one that elected Alan Rothenberg at the time where it was clear that FIFA wanted a different organizational structure for the U.S. to be given the World Cup. Um, but there were term limits. So Alan Rothenberg, in the end, you know, was elected in 90 and he stayed in, in power through 98. But that was a, an interesting, to me, turn of event because now that we are sort of calling on TAS or calling on FIFA to intervene and, and help the U.S. soccer scene become all that can, that maybe we'll see the same kind of intervention in the future as we saw back in 1990, leading up to a total reorganization of the way soccer is run in this country. 
I may be daydreaming, but at the same time, I think that's a likely course of event. It may not be next year, maybe four years from now, but you know, as you know, Australia and the U.S. are the only two countries that don't abide by those promotion relegation rules. And I don't believe that the public is satisfied uh, with that structure. So eventually, the Dennis Crowley and is Mike his first name, Silva? Uh, I th- I think it's is it Ricardo? It Ricardo Silva. Uh, you know, there will be enough of them uh, with enough power that you know FIFA will respond. Maybe FIFA will respond, or maybe what I was saying earlier, this implosion of the existing league um, will happen faster than we can imagine. You mentioned something I want to I want to touch on that the public is is starting to kind of you know show a little bit of, uh, I guess, support for the promotion relegation more so than ever before. And I, I think an important part to point out is that a lot of people just don't know about this side of things. They don't, they don't know that this could potentially be available for American soccer. So a lot of people that follow, a lot of people that follow major league soccer, they just think that that's the way that it is. And they just, they, they simply just do not know. And that, uh, it's true, but as you know, the, the population that follows MLS is a tiny percentage of the soccer clientele in North America. Mm-hmm. Somebody said it was 7% of the market. Maybe it's a bit more than that, but it's been around now for 20 years, or almost 20 years, and the TV ratings continue to be abysmal, and attendance you know, is not particularly good except for the new franchise when they open. Um, so you could make a strong case for saying that maybe for those 90% you know, who don't follow MLS, if you had a different organizational structure, uh, that maybe they would care a lot more. I mean, after all, many more people watch the European leagues on TV, whether it's English or Spanish or German. Uh, there are people who watch MLS, and you have to ask yourself, wouldn't it be smarter to cater to those 90% than to try to build something new that clearly is taking forever to take off? You know, if we want to be authentic in terms of what we like, you know, promotion and relegation is nothing new to anybody. I mean, most kids who played youth soccer played State Cup, you know, and, and they played in various leagues where the top team would go up and the weaker team would play lower division. People who play amateur soccer, you know, adult amateur, people in their 20s, 30s, all the way to their late 50s. <laughs> they, play in organized, they play in organized leagues with promotion and relegation. And that's, therefore, you know, maybe a natural evolution for them to think, well, wouldn't that professional team be so much better if we had that carrot and that stick every year? You know, making sure that those teams that don't do well, going back to the bottom of the table of the MLS teams, um, you know, should go play in a different league while the top team in the D2 or D3 or D4, whatever we want to call the lower leagues, would be given that chance to go up. I think it would create an incredible support for the sport. The Deloitte study, I think, was very moderate in its conclusion, but clearly stated that, that it would have a very beneficiary effect on the sport itself. Um, and to, 
this year, in the past two years, have been quite interesting following you know, the attendance of some of the NPSL team or even USL team, um, you know, who at times will draw larger crowds than what the NASL or the MLS teams draw. And that's telling you that there's popular support across the country and that we should have a free market for the top leagues, you know, not an administrative one. Jerome, I'm curious, how often are you having conversations about this? You seem like you're very well versed in, in talking about the TV ratings and and attendance and, and the structure of leagues. So it seems like you have this conversation often. Well, I've been involved with the Federation and the Foundation from the very beginning. When did this, when did well, promotion relegation enter the conversation? The, well, we were, many of us have had that conversation for 25 years. Okay. You know, not all of us were supportive of the single entity structure. Well, this, if we were, maybe we were so for a limited period of time, thinking that there would come a time. And maybe that time was reached in 2005, six. Um, Certainly by 2010, where we felt that franchise should be allowed to become clubs, um, which they have not. I'm a real soccer fan. Maybe I don't qualify as a soccer nut, but I'm clearly somebody who has passion for the sport and who wishes for the best. I've been disappointed, despite all the investment that we made and all the effort that came into those investments that we've not been able to do a better job at structuring professional soccer in this country. So I get frustrated, you know, and then over the years I get to run an MLS team and I go there with the hope that I'll be able to impact changes positively. Um, And for the limited time that I stay at the helm of the Red Bulls, I try to do that. Um, But there was some frustration because uh, those changes that I was trying to implement didn't come through, did not come through right away, and now we're in 2017, and the rhetoric has not changed very much. So yeah, whether it's you know through my friends, the owners, or my friends, the coaches, or my friends, the agent, or the players, or many other people that I deal with, uh, we discuss that quite regularly. I'm I'm very curious what catapulted you into that circle where you know the owners and you're becoming a, a chairman and a, in, in the boardrooms and those types of things. What what event do you think got you to that point? Because you came over here as just a student, it sounded like, and you played lower well, division I college soccer. I was involved with the federation uh, through my involvement with youth soccer in Illinois. Uh, we moved to Chicago. My wife and I got married right after graduation and we moved to Chicago and the children were born and uh, quickly, you know, played for the clubs in Illinois. My two sons played for the Chicago Magic um, and I was, like most dads, you know, passionate about their own success and my daughter joined a very competitive club as well. So I coached and then I refereed and then I joined the board of a local club and then I was invited by the people who run youth soccer in Illinois to participate you know, in the debate and the World Cup happened so I helped out locally in Chicago 
And then after the World Cup, the foundation was put together, and the people who put the foundation together asked, you know, throughout the U.S. ranks, or youth, amateur, and so on, if anyone knew of someone with expertise in finance and expertise in soccer, someone was kind enough to promote my name. It was Gus Bender, who is still today the president of Illinois Youth Soccer Association, who gave me that opportunity to meet with Alan Rothenberg and all those people who've never since been friends. And parallel to that, um, chance to be in school with a fairly famous person who's become a very close friend, and I'm referring to Prince Albert of Monaco, you know, who was equally passionate about soccer, you know, who family had continues to run one of the most successful professional clubs in France, AS Monaco. So a couple of years after I joined the foundation, um, he asked me to join the board of AS Monaco and eventually led to my presidency starting in 2008. So I think I can give you many other examples as to why in the end I was involved in things that I did but I think the common thread to them all is my passion for the sport and the fact that I'm very comfortable evolving in that world. Um, so you, you could keep me online for quite a, a bit and address many different <laughs> subjects, I'm including Croatian soccer, um, because many of my friends in the soccer world are from Croatia. Well, they're they're in their own hot water right now, so. <laughs> Do you follow? Do, do you but follow it, but that? an impressive country, you know. I follow, yeah, I follow. You know, so does the name Tsitsu Concha mean anything to you? No, no. The Tsitsu was a coach player who played for Rapid Vienna in the late 80s, mid 80s to early 90s. Um, at the time, there was no Croatian national team, but he played on the Yugoslavian national team. He was quite a star in. Europe, particularly at Rapid Vienna, where he played. We happened to live in Austria for two years, two and a half, 90s to 93. My wife is Austrian. Um, and my son uh, went on to play for Rapid Vienna, where his teammates with Nico Concha. Nico Concha is a Croatian player who played for Tottenham. Yeah, okay. Now I, I know. And that plays for. Glasgow Rangers. Yeah. So through the Crenshaw family, you know, I got to meet most people who matter in Croatian soccer, and I've always been impressed, you know, having spent time there and having occasionally gone vacation with them, playing soccer with many well-known Croatian players. It's always impressed me to realize that it's a tiny country, you know, maybe four million people. And that's part of the overall you know, debate that we should have you know, as to why is it that a country like Croatia or take another very good example, Uruguay you know, Uruguay is three and a half million people, Croatia is four million people you know, how is it that a small population of that magnitude can produce world class soccer teams and we with our 350 or so million Americans, we cannot. 
See, we must be doing something wrong. You know, I live in Illinois. So Illinois is 12 million. You could argue that if you gave each state, say California or New York or Florida, Illinois, each state a national team you know, with the right structure, it's not far-fetched to say that maybe each one of those individual national teams would do a better job, would be more competitive than the national team as we have it today. It's kind of a running joke we have in Cali- especially in Southern California, that that we say that just give us our own national team and we'll do better in the World Cup than than our United States national team. Yeah, but I think Illinois will beat you. Say it again. <laughs> yeah, but I think Illinois will beat you. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it. It's something I think uh, when the promotion relegation debate comes up. They're like, okay, well, this you, you, this market can't support that many professional teams. And you look at a city like Los Angeles that's that's ten million, and you're saying that there's only two professional teams worth of players in that entire city of twelve million, twenty million people, whatever it is. That, that's that's absurd. And you look at a city like London that has I don't know how many professional teams there, probably or not professional teams, but teams in general, hundreds. So, mm-hmm. it's it's hard. But you know, I, I don't know that this, the explanation is there. I mean, New York has two teams, and hardly any game ever helped out. So you cannot create, you know, fake attachment. It's got to be a set. It's got to come from the ground up. Mm-hmm. If we had allowed the you know, traditional clubs, you know, youth clubs that we had twenty five years ago, to go into being professional clubs. I think the attendance would be far better and the overall interest of the soccer population would be a magnitude or multiple of what it is today. See, the promotion and relegation cannot be just at the top level. It's got to be throughout the ranks. You know, what we see across the country is those academies put together. While it was a good step to start with, and I haven't mentioned that to you, but I was of the new academy program for top youth clubs when it did not exist. The idea then was to provide a better environment for those clubs to compete in uh, and do a a better training, a better ratio of training to game and so on. All the intents were good. But then it was capitalized along the way by MLS, which decided, and for in every franchise, you know, I think everybody thought that it was probably a good community effort to show support for the youth, but they decided to make it free. So suddenly you had you know, 10, and now it's 22, so um, academy, MLS academies, where everything is free, which you could argue maybe is very generous of them, but it's disrupting the whole youth scene so much that, in essence, it's having a negative impact on the development of players. Because nowadays, you know, if you're not, say, the Chicago Fire, and you try to compete at the youth level, your players, in many instances, to provide a competitive environment for the Fire, you've got to make it free as well. Well, you don't have 
and Andrew Hubbard with his million, you know, being able to write checks to youth soccer. So how does a youth club pay for you know, a U16 or U18 academy team? It just charges more to the U8, U9, U10, all the way through U14 players, um, which in turn is driving people away. Um, so I think if we had the, an, an administered academy environment where the federation dictates who is part of the academy and who is not, if we had an academy system based on merit where every year, you know, to take the example of State Cup, well, the, the, the team that wins State Cup, top then qualify for the national academy environment. I think we would achieve much greater results in terms of producing players than we have. So, some will argue, and I don't totally disagree with them, that a youth development program is worse today than it was 20 years ago. Um, certainly when I look at the, my sons played with here in Illinois and try to come up with similar names today, I just can't. You know, th there was a time where Chicago, and I can talk about Chicago more than I can talk about other parts of the country, but Chicago Magic, now we had 10 other very good clubs that every year we're trying to compete with the soccer and the Magic. And while the soccer and the Magic maybe won more state cups than all the other clubs, you know, many other clubs managed to win state cups and it was even truer on the girl side but back then you know if, if you ask me well who did those soccer and magic produce and you know, and i knew those people very well it was brad gazan and he was jonathan specter eric liha it was ned grabovoy mike mcgee uh, brian Bodkin. i mean I, I can go in with other names but we don't seem to have those names today and I think it's too short of a conversation to tell you all that is wrong with the academy structure run by MLS. But even if that was not the core issue of the conversation, the lack of promotion of litigation, I think, is the base element that's missing in an academy system. So if we, we put it in place for youth, and then we naturally see it evolve the protocols. And we have enough, and many others are very good at reminding us how many clubs operate every year from the NPSL all the way up to MLS to think that if we had an open pyramid, we would certainly have much better clubs, much better competition throughout the pyramid from you know, D7 all the way to D1. Get there. You know, I'm optimistic that maybe I'm overly optimistic. Maybe it'll take longer than I would like, but I think you know, the aspirations of people like the one we mentioned earlier uh, are becoming more widespread. And the forces you know, in play will certainly yield some results before too long. One of the things, I mean, if we want to talk about Croatian soccer, which is I, th I think interesting, and you mentioned it a little bit ago when you said that everybody kind of agreed to go the franchise route with the kind of maybe like the idea that eventually it would turn into like a, like clubs, like there would there would be that option or that time when it would be right to turn into clubs. Well, I did. I don't know that everybody else did, but yeah. some of us. Yeah. So, 
But but that idea though. So I I know in Croatian soccer when they first when the country first formed after or first formed their league right after the war, they had a rule that you couldn't leave the the Croatian league for another like an outside league for I think I don't know a year or two years or something like I can't remember exactly the details. But that was that was to make their league strong at first, but that was the intention was always to open it up. And so they did that for a little bit of time. They built some, they built some popularity within the league, and they they created some, some, um, some superstars within the league, and they got experience within the league. And then they opened up everything. And, and now look at what happened. So that's just one example of of a country, you know, being willing to change. Yeah. Or, but you know what's happening there. Slovakia, Slovenia, or Austria, or Hungary, and then you, you go further east, you know, Bosnia, Serbia, and so on. I think eventually, you know, some of those countries will need to come together. Commercially, it's very difficult to make ends meet, short of just selling players. It's very difficult to bring sponsors and develop TV rights you know, that would allow you to remain competitive. It's a change thing in Europe. What we're talking about today is very different from what I witnessed as a kid. Um, but back then, you know, was D5, and when I was a young adult, Oxea was in D1, and eventually won the French Championship, won the French Cup, and made it once to the semifinal of the Champions League, and twice, I think, to the quarterfinal of the UEFA Cup. So. It was quite doable, and I think it, it is still doable today, but you know, it's a lot more difficult for an Auxerre-type club or a Croatian club, you know, even Dinamo Zagreb, mm-hmm. uh, to compete with clubs like PNG that can spend you know, 222 million euros on one player. And maybe maybe that's something that the U.S. actually has an advantage over other countries too. If we were to have an open system, that there are plenty of people that have plenty of money here that are willing to be sports teams owners and and spend cash if they were allowed to. Probably, it's speculating, I know, but uh, but look at Manchester United. I mean, look at Liverpool. I mean, look at AS Roma. Just for example of U.S.-owned clubs where they seem to be willing to spend serious money. But, you know, most of the heavy investors will not, will probably not invest in a U.S. soccer club as long as we can't call them clubs. Yeah. I think they, they see themselves writing on the wall, but the MLS structure will not work long term. That you know, owners will want to own their clubs. They will not want to be first and foremost investors or minority investors in the league which is what they are today yeah it's interesting when you get a group of people LAFC specifically when you get a group of 100 people to share the cost of uh, what is it 150 million that they paid to get into the league it's like what's 1 million to those to those 150 people or 100 people that got in that's really just kind of a, a drop in the bucket for a lot of those guys like a Magic Johnson or Something like that. That that isn't a significant investment, and it's it's almost not worth whatever the return could be. Yeah, I, I can't talk for them. I mean, That's I true. think it's great that people invest in soccer. 
don't get me wrong, I'm not critical of you know, people putting their money into the sport. I think in a way they're misguided. I think all this money that's been spent in MLS over the past 20 years could have yielded much better results than what we have today. And the fact that there are still people, there not many, but still people willing to put a lot of their money in you know, franchises is interesting, but it's not anything that validates the concept that we should have franchises or clubs. Isn't it interesting if you look at the MLS scene to recognize that the clubs that are doing best are the newer clubs and that the original clubs, and DC United is probably the prime example of that, but from you know, Washington to Boston to Dallas to Columbus, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some, when you look at where they are, you know, it's far from being a cheerful scene. And for them, that others are willing to invest you know, so much money into the league, it doesn't have the same impact as it did 20 years ago when there were only six or seven of them and a newcomer you know, came in. Simple math, you know, if there are 20 teams and somebody pays 100 million to join DIG, even though it doesn't exactly work that way, what it means is that basically, you know, 100 million is going to be split between 20 teams, i.e. 5 million a team. But back in 2006 or seven, when there were only four or five owners and seven or eight teams and somebody came in and paid 20 or 25 or 30 million, the impact was the same. So the, the, the numbers in themselves are not all that important to the existing owners. What some of the owners, I suspect, are really wishing for is that someone, rather than starting a new franchise, is going to come to them and offer to buy them out for 100 or 150 million. Well, we haven't seen any of that. That's interesting. Which I think tells you the fact that, you know, the what's driving people to buy in is somewhat opaque. Think they had a choice? That's, again, an opinion. It doesn't entail anybody else. <laughs> you on the matter, but I believe that if we had a competitive league you know, with promotion and litigation and the ability for investors to have a real impact, I think we would see greater sums of money being traded. I I 100% agree. Um, is it, I, I've had you for an hour now. I don't want to take up your entire afternoon. Is there is there anything else you kind of want oh, to get out to uh, to everybody? I have 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Okay, let's keep going. Um, I I want to say, if I'm not mistaken, that when I first talked with Ted about you, that there was some type of rumor going around that you might run for USSF president. Is that something that has any truth to it? Well, there's some truth to it because I had a conversation with a number of people about it uh, back in 2010. Um, and at the time, I opted not to run, um, but a number of people on the Federation Board and the Foundation Board knew that I had given it some thought. Um, 
when 94 came about, I was still running the Red Bulls, so it was not a consideration. Um, and I really haven't given it enough thought to tell you whether I will or not, you know, in 2018. Um, somewhere I would prefer to you know, contribute to the election of, you know, a new person, someone maybe younger and someone with newer ideas. Um, but having not made up my decision, I can't tell you whether I will or will not. But it's fair to say that it's a consideration. And are you familiar with the process of what it, of, of how to of how to do that, or would you be learning how to do that as you go? No, no, I'm familiar with the process. That's something that's always I think seemed difficult for people to understand is is that there's not really any information out there for for us as fans to look up like oh like when is the election how does an election happen who votes well, the election like every four years at the time of the AGM which is this annual gathering of all the leaders of youth amateur and pro soccer typically takes place in March but sometimes different time of the year um, the bylaws are online and you know if people can't access them so the federation has a duty to make those available to those who ask for them so no, it's not a very complicated process to obtain those bylaws. The elections, you know, what we found is that it's challenging because the people in place, going back to what I said earlier, over the years have appointed people who are in voting positions. So they, they certainly, you know, have had this ability over a long period of time to, in a way, impact the election. For some reason, you know, I did not understand at the time, they did away with term limits when Sunil was elected, I think, or after his second mandate. They want to reinstitute those, and I think it's, it's a healthy thought. Um, but I, I believe that the debate you know, cannot take place, or the important questions cannot be raised, if we do not have several people running for the position. So independently of what I think of Sunil, you know, who has time I've called a friend and with whom I certainly have a good relationship, I think Sunil himself, you know, would benefit from being in an environment where people were able to discuss what's important to them. And I think promotion and litigation would be dead center to most of those conversations. Is that is the relationship between the person who is president, so in this case Sunil, and him electing people or putting people in place that have voting power? Is that something that Dennis and 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 Ricardo Silva is that something that they should be bringing up in their in their case that's supposed to go to FIFA? Yes, I mean it's certainly an important element, but it's not anything new, and there's nothing dishonest in it. Um, you know, MLS is new, so how do you get to coach a professional in soccer? Well, over the past 15 years, you have to get on the good side of the leadership of MLS to even be considered. They would make recommendations to owners. As you know, most MLS owners never played the game. You know, the only couple who have um, so, yeah, people in position of power today had real influence in the selection of 
people to, who today are in positions to vote. Um, so if you take those persons one and ask them publicly for an opinion, they will rarely contradict the leadership. When you get them one-on-one you know, outside of the public eye, I think most of them, because they love the sports, recognize that we would all benefit from some structural changes. Um, but there's definitely room for someone to be elected. I mean, there's plenty of you know, interesting things to debate. Uh, and I would encourage those who are you know, of age and of the means, at least for another paid position, uh, to consider it. I think the country benefits from changes. From the outside looking in, I, I just, I feel like I have to assume it's like an episode of House of Cards, where everything is just all backroom talking and, and deals and, and whatnot. But I'm sure it's not like that, but I just assume that it is. <laughs> You still there? I'm here. I'm here. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, I didn't know you were asking, making a statement. Or asking yeah. a question. <laughs> no, just a joke. Just a joke. Um, yeah, it's just it's. I I, I want to backtrack really quick too, because you mentioned you had some type of correspondence, or maybe it was a friendship, or or, or I'm I'm not sure. Maybe you can refresh my memory of what type of relationship it was with the previous president. Um, you, Alan, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when there was the changing of the guard between him and Sunil, was it also a changing of ideas, or do you feel like it was? Well, just it was more not like directly a... from him to Sunil. No, okay. Alan brought Sunil onto the scene. You know, at the time when we also had Chuck Bezer, but when Alan stepped down because of the term limits, he was replaced by Dr. Bob. Contiguglia, who was then president from 1998 to 2006. Oh, okay. Okay. Neil had hoped to be elected vice president in 98, but lost that election to a gentleman whose name I forgot. Um, but by the time uh, he won for president, after Bob won his term limits of two elections, he won an and so has he, you know, in 2010 and 2014. Um, as to why it's a much longer conversation than we have for the next 10 minutes. Um, but it was not an easy route for him either. I mean, Sunil has done a lot of great things for soccer. You know, and I think he's contributed a lot of his personal time and family life to be where he is and to elevate soccer to where it is in the country. I unfortunately wish he had not had you know, the close ties that he kept with MLS um, because eventually it has limited him in his ability to enforce or implement the right changes. Have you had a conversation with Sunil? One-on-one? Oh, I've had, not recently, but... Uh, we, particularly when I was in New York running the Red Bulls, you know, people don't fully appreciate that, but U.S. soccer is very New York-centric. You, know, you, you have Sunil in New York and you have Don Garber and the MLS leadership in New York and many, in fact, of the team owners who live, if not full-time, certainly part-time in New York. 
So when I ran the Red Bulls, there was no NYCFC. Um, I clearly saw a lot more Sunil and Don than I had done before that I have since then. What were conversations like when you when you talked with those those guys one on one? Was it business? Were you guys? Is it more personal? I think it was very friendly. I mean, you're dealing with two educated, intelligent individuals. Um, it was certainly more soccer centric with Sunil than it was with Don, just because. Um, but Don thought he had it hard to do the right thing for the league, uh, and uh, I tried to influence him in terms of the competition format, uh, uh, certainly the media coverage, um, maybe the idea of moving from a March to November calendar to a July through May calendar. we had many interesting conversations. Now, with Sunil, it was always very friendly. And we, we never had any you know, public argument. With Don, I had a few because I was not totally aligned with you know, the introduction of a new team in New York. Um, you know, nor was I aligned with some of the decisions that we made in regards to the competition format. So that led to a few public exchange. Um, but I think our relationship survived all that and we stayed in talking terms. In fact, I saw Don Garber at the dedication of a soccer field in Chicago last week. That was partially funded by the U.S. Soccer Foundation, uh, with which I'm still involved. And for the dedication of this field on West 57th Street in Chicago, um, Don was there with a few other people from the Federation. So we know we disagree on some core issues, but I think the relationship is very cordial and professional. I think it's also important for people to hear that that these are conversations that have happened or are happening because sometimes I think it's, it's the assumption that these guys are just ignoring these ideas. They're not talking about these types of things at board meetings or gatherings or things like that. But I, I, I know I've had conversations with other people who've said similar to what you've said, they've had these conversations with Garber and Sunil and other MLS owners. And so the conversations are happening. It's just now what, what are the next steps? No, the conversation is happening, but to the point of, you know, Ricardo Silva visiting with Don Garber to talk about promotion and litigation, uh, I think most of us have come to the realization that change will not occur with the present leadership. So that's the next step then, new leadership. Yeah, we, we need early, but I, I, I'm careful in saying that because I don't want to give MLS the decision of having promotion and litigation does not come to MLS. It's a federation you know, issue. Mm-hmm. Um, easier decision to make at the federation level if you could have the support or the endorsement of the majority of franchise owners. Um, so to, to get to that, you would need leadership at the top of MLS that could 
good the advantage and all the benefit that the majority of those owners would draw from having a proper pyramid of clubs in this country. And I don't believe that you know, the top four or five people in terms of MLS today will ever change their views on it because they feel threatened by that change. And therefore, uh, I am of the opinion that for the owners of MLS to receive the proper recommendation and proper guidance in regards to the future of their franchise, that it won't happen until we have new leadership to help with MLS. It's interesting insight. I like I like bringing guys like you on on the podcast because I I learn a ton. I, <laughs> Good. I, Good. I I every time I think that I I know something and then you you guys just put me in my place. <laughs> but it's well, more importantly, remember that I scored three goals on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we need to make and a, I play again on Saturday. We, we need to make a billboard for you so that way nobody ever forgets. <laughs> Jerome, do you have anything else that you want to leave listeners with? Any any last message or? Well, you know, we talk a lot about MLS and the federation. In, in, you know, I'm mostly interested in the youth movement. Chairing the Rush Soccer Organization is probably one of the most gratifying positions I've had in soccer. It's not as prestigious. But and tell you know, any of the perks that you get when you're president of AS Monaco or GM of the New York Red Bulls. Um, but you have no challenges, and you can probably have a greater impact with a youth organization than you can with a poor club. And my recent experience with Rush is that you know, we need to focus on the youth scene. And we need maybe to take a step back and wonder what went wrong you know, since the implementation of the academies. Uh, and how could we fix the new problems that have emerged so that you know, we don't drive more kids away from soccer? Because, as I was saying earlier, it seems to be a greater challenge today to keep uh, boys and girls in competition than it was before. All right, sir. I appreciate your time. Well, maybe we'll meet when I visit the Firestone in Santa Barbara. Um, and if not, in the meantime, I said to write a call to answer your question. Yeah. Um, if uh, if you do make it out here, I would love to meet with you. I'm I'm literally 20 minutes away from their vineyard, so if you're ever out this way, please contact me. I will do that. Okay. I have your phone now. Oh, you do? You do. <laughs> Good luck to you. All right. Thank you, Jerome. Bye-bye. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. I appreciate you. I thank you. And if you could do me a huge favor, it'd be great if you would go and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher or wherever you're listening to. Maybe I'll find out someplace new that I should be posting this. Um, But nonetheless, thank you for listening. And if you want more of this podcast or more from 343, you can always check out 343coaching.com. That's the number three, the number four, the number three. Coaching, that's all spelled out, .com. 
Once again, that's numbers three, four, and three, C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G.com. All right. Until next time, we appreciate you. Thank you, and goodbye.